Well, Merry Christmas and welcome to our Sunday School Hour for Graceway Baptist Church. This will be our last Sunday School lesson for the year. We're going to get everybody, the teachers and everybody else, a Christmas break. And so um, we'll pick up again in January. But uh, on this one, we want to end. And uh, as we come right into the heart of the Christmas season, we kind of want to make sure we understand everything and that we're all on the same page. And while you probably do, there may be somebody in your class who has never really thought much about the real meaning of Christmas. And uh, even deeper, it's so easy for us to say things like, keep Christ in Christmas. Well, what does that mean? The baby in a manger, in a nativity scene somewhere? Sometimes we, uh, it was popular back a few decades ago, uh, there was even a Christmas musical that I did in one of my churches called uh, The Reason for the Season. And, you know, and it rhymes. It's kind of clever. <clears throat> but the problem is nobody who's lost really gets either one of those kind of things. Keep Christ in Christmas. What does that mean? Go to church at Christmas, uh, read the Christmas story or something like that, or say thank you, Jesus, for Santa Claus and all my presence. There's a Gene Autry song when he's saying, here comes Santa Claus. And he said, uh, in it, and let's give thanks to the Lord above because Santa Claus comes tonight. Oh, I thought, what a really weird thing. But yet that's what so many people do. They don't really see the significance of either one. They just kind of put both of them together and they assume that any celebration of Christmas is Christian. And a lot of Pagan people and maybe Jewish people would assume that if it's not Jewish, it's got to be Christian. And if it's Christian, it's got to be about Christ. And yet so much of what we do is so far from anything that really matters. And so we have a, an, an assignment here to really understand what it means to put Christ in Christmas and in the Christmas story. So... Uh, in order to do that, I don't go to Luke chapter 2 or Matthew chapter 1 or anything like that. I'm going to take us back in time 700 years before the birth of Christ. How does that sound for a Christmas story? And we go to Isaiah chapter 53. Man, I love this chapter. It's one of my favorite chapters in the entire Word of God. And uh, I like it because it is so clear and so graphically predicts what Jesus is going to do for us. And uh, we have found in the Dead Sea Scrolls and places like that, archaeologically, that this book was, you know, with actual copies from back in the uh, day that are hundreds of years before the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. So they're not doctored up by the early church. They're not doctored up by early Christians who want to just kind of insert Jesus into anything. This is what was actually there long before Jesus was ever born. And uh, it's, it's such a wonderful passage of Scripture. So we'll look at it, verses 1 through 11. <clears throat> and while we uh, talk about this, let me just say this is the Sunday School lesson for December the 17th. And that means that tonight, uh, the 17th of December, is our candlelight Lord's Supper service. And so please be sure and uh, remind your Sunday school class of that. 
You might shoot them a text or an email or something like that and certainly remind them of that in, their, in your class on Sunday morning because we want them to be there as we think about the real reason that Jesus came and that was his death for our sins. And then I also want to remind you that it's uh, during this time period we're collecting an offering for our church staff. And so uh, join me in giving to that and uh, we'll bless them and give thanks for them and encourage them. So give generously on that. I would appreciate it if you would promote that. And then on uh, Sunday, December the 24th, Christmas Eve, we're going to actually have that night a Christmas Eve service. And uh, we're going to have it at 5.30, our normal time. It'll only be about uh, 30 or so minutes long. And so uh, come as a family, bring your little kids. We don't care if they cry or anything like that. We'll be together as a family. And we'll uh, just have a time where we remember what Christmas is all about. And have uh, candlelight and silent night, all of those kind of things. Just a traditional family time together to set the right tone. Now invite friends, invite your neighbors, and bring as many guests as you can, and we'll come together and have a chance to share the gospel with all of them. And we appreciate you praying for that. We've never tried anything like this before, but we want to do that this year. It seemed to be a natural occurrence. If it works well, we may continue on. It may be a new tradition. If not, we can always... Do what we've done before, right? But let's get to the point at hand on here and let's think about what Isaiah has to say here for us because people are more than willing to have a little Jesus, a little baby Jesus in a manger. Nobody's threatened by that. We need to do something for him, help him. And they see him as a kind of a powerless figure, a mythological figure, But when you read in Isaiah chapter 53, boy, do you ever get the sense of who Jesus is and why he came and the power and the plan and the sovereignty of God. C.S. Lewis said that Jesus, we can think of him like most people do as a good moral teacher. We can think of him as a crazy man. Why would anybody do what he did or go through all of that, or he could be just a flat-out liar, and he's just a fraud. But then Lewis goes on to point out that a good man wouldn't lie, and a good man, a good moral teacher, wouldn't rave like a lunatic, and uh, he certainly wouldn't deceive us or anything like that. So he's either Lord, liar, or he's a lunatic. You really don't have any other options for that. Lord, liar or lunatic. And we present Jesus Christ as Lord of all because you cannot just relegate him to being uh, what he is not. He is what he is. And the prophecies that were given to uh, us about the Lord are absolutely amazing. Read through your Old Testament sometime and mark all of the prophecies that refer to the coming of the Messiah and you will see that Jesus is indeed the promised one and the only one that could fulfill that. Now Isaiah 53, 1-11 tells us a lot about him. Okay, Quite a bit of scripture here, but uh, boy is it ever a blessing. You ready? Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? 
For he, meaning Christ, shall grow up before him, before the Lord, before God, as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form, physical form, or comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. We turned them away. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, in other words, punished, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes, his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him, on Jesus, the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison, referring to Pilate, and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living, meaning he died. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death. That's unexpected for a crucifixion, by the way. Because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. And he was put to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed and he shall prolong his days. That means his life is going to be extended in spite of the fact that he died. He's going to be raised for eternity. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. God's going to do what he promised to do. Verse 11. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant, meaning Jesus, shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. That's the Old Testament. 700 some years before Jesus. And what do we find? The substitutionary death of the Messiah. We find somebody, the innocent, dying for the guilty in our place, bearing our sins and bringing justification, a right relationship with God, not by our performance, not by going through rituals, but by what the suffering servant, the Messiah, does for us. That's the book of Romans. That's everything taught in Galatians. That's what the Bible teaches in the New Testament. And there it is prophesied all these years before when uh, we would have expected to hear, do better, try harder, get your life together, get your act together, and make yourself acceptable to God. But even in the Old Testament, we are taught that we can't do it 
It has to be done for us, and it has to be done by somebody who is indeed righteous, and that would only be God. And so God himself has solved our problem, died in our place for our sins, and made us acceptable to God. This is what the beauty of Christmas really is. This is what the power of Christmas really is, and yet this is a part that gets very little in our Christmas celebrations. Maybe a kind of a wink and a nod, a, a reference every once in a while until we can really get to the good stuff and the fun stuff. And yet when you think about it, this is what really matters out of life. Because if you die without Christ, you spend an eternity in hell. And if you do know him, think of what he has done and think of the pain and the sorrow and the suffering he bore in your place as the wrath of God was poured out upon him. So when we think about this, what do we learn? Number one, notice this, he draws people to himself. That's in verses 1 and 2. And we, we find this because nobody's believed us and the arm of the Lord, it has to be revealed, it says in verse 1. It's not discovered, it's revealed. God has to reveal himself. And then it says that he grows up before God as a tender plant. He doesn't come in power and strength. He comes up like a tender plant, like, um, well, in your garden when they come up. I remember I was with my grandpa one time, and we were in his garden, and we were pulling up uh, some weeds. And I started pulling up the little two-inch stalks of corn because they looked like weeds to me. I didn't know any better, and they were easy to pull up. Just pull them up, and, and then they died. So I ruined part of his corn crop in his garden that year until he showed me the difference in what I was doing because it was a tender plant. I probably, at that age, I was really little, could not have pulled up a full stalk of corn out of the ground, but I could pull up the tender plant. And what Isaiah is saying is, when the Lord comes, the Messiah comes, we would expect him to come on a white horse with armor and with a sword and with archers and guards and an army coming in to take over. Well, that will happen someday, but that's not the way his first coming was. He came, remember, as a baby. Herod was not threatened by Christ as a baby. In fact, he sent soldiers into Bethlehem and all of their districts to kill all of the male children two years of age and under. He thought he could conquer the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He thought he could subdue him and do away with him so that his own reign and his status with Rome would not be threatened by any of that. And much of that is in the world today. When you think about the world and you tell them about Jesus, and when you tell them about Jesus that's cold, laying in a manger on hay and in a stable and all of that, oh, that's so sad. We need to do something to help the homeless, to help little children. It's just interesting how they think about that. But tell them about Jesus, who's a grown man, who is a king, who died on a cross, who rose from the dead, and is the only uh, full payment for sin, then they have a completely different reaction to it. So he came up as a tender plant. And notice, even in great difficulty, a root out of dry ground. They usually don't grow 
uh, a root out of dry ground, do they? Or if they do, it's with great difficulty and it's not uh, particularly fruitful or anything like that. And then Isaiah goes on to describe it, that Jesus was just an average looking person. There was no physical form. There was nothing that really attracted you to him. There was nothing that was just, oh, he's so handsome. And oh man, does he ever just really just kind of fill up a room when he comes into it. Nothing like that. No beauty that we should desire him. In other words, we, we know that he has to draw people to himself because there's no natural attraction to our witness. There's no natural reason for his existence. He's a root out of dry ground. Where'd that come from? Well, that's amazing that that even survived. And there's no natural attraction to him because there's no beauty that we should desire him. And that's why John 6, 44 says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up at the last day. Why is that? Because there's nothing that we would ever be able to see. It goes right over our heads and we just don't care. And he doesn't really seem to have anything that we really want. The Spirit has to change our heart and change our mind. Number two, he suffers rejection and suffering in his life. Now, we would think just like the Jews would and others, when Messiah comes, he's going to have the charmed life, the perfect life. He's going to be rich. He's going to be famous. He's going to be powerful. Everybody's going to see him. Everybody's going to know him. And yet Isaiah pictures him here as being one that goes through a lot of torment and a lot of suffering. Despised, that means overlooked, ignored, rejected, whenever that comes. I don't want that. We will not have this man to be king over us, as it says in the New Testament. And then instead of being a man of power and greatness and joy, he's a man of sorrows. He's acquainted with grief. And what do we do? We hid, as it were, our faces from him. We, we turn away. It's almost like it's repulsive. We don't want to look at anyone like that. And he was despised and we did not esteem him. We didn't step in and go, wait a minute, this guy is great and powerful. Even his disciples forsook him when he went to his trial. And uh, so despised and rejected, ignored and considered irrelevant. I know a lot of people would say, oh, I would never do that. But you think about how many times they think about Christ, how many times they actually worship Christ, how little they love Christ, how uh, often they pray to Christ or conform their life to Christ. It's not very much. As long as it doesn't cost us anything, as long as it doesn't make me miss a ball game, as long as it doesn't uh, distract me from what I really want to do, I'll give Jesus a tip of the hat. I'll put a quarter in the plate. I'll give him an hour out of my week, that kind of thing. That, that's what he's talking about here. We do the same thing that they did back in his day. And he suffered the trials of ordinary life. Everybody has sorrow in their life. Everybody is acquainted with grief. We all lose loved ones. It's part of the rhythm and the nature of life, isn't it? And uh, we wouldn't expect the Messiah to be like us. And yet some people say, well, it's kind of cool that he was like us. But most people go, if he's just like me, then why do I need him? He's no different, no better than I am. And he suffers the same thing that I do. 
And so because he suffered, people just said, well, he can't be the Messiah. There's no possible way he could do that because the assumption is that a Messiah wouldn't suffer in an ordinary way like we do. And if you think about it, he did attract some attention in Israel. But even at that, it wasn't just a whole lot. 5,000 uh, when he was handing out free food. But in the whole scheme of things, that's not all that much. Then when you think about the world in general, Athens didn't care. Rome didn't care. I mean, you look at all of the capitals and the empires and all of that, they just didn't care. They didn't even notice. And when the wise men noticed something in the star, how come nobody else noticed that? This whole thing was seen as just no big deal. And so many people think today about Christmas, oh, it's a big deal. We'll spend a billion dollars or so on wrapping paper just to throw it away. And we'll decorate and all of those kind of things. Nothing particularly wrong with that. But Jesus doesn't get anywhere near the attention that the toys and that the wrapping paper and all of that get, gets. We don't even come close to giving to charity in the way that we spend it on ourselves and on our families. And that's what uh, Isaiah is really telling us. He's largely irrelevant even in today's world. We have to fight to make sure we keep everything centered on Christ, don't we? It's a hard fight too, admittedly. Number three, <clears throat> his birth and life qualified him to be our sacrifice. And that's the point. He's doing this. And while the naysayers at the foot of the cross may say, see, God is punishing him and see, he's nothing but a criminal or they wouldn't be executing him. Uh, it says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God. He's getting what he deserves. God is showing him to be the fraud that he really is. That's what they all thought. The Pharisees thought. That's why it must have shocked them to hear a Roman soldier at the end of Jesus' life say, surely this was the Son of God. This, this pagan Roman came to a conclusion that the religious leaders could not stomach. And yet, there it was. Christ revealing himself to be the one who fulfills this prophecy and the one who does this. But he's not doing it for himself. He's doing it for us. Wounded for our transgressions bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace, our peace with God, was upon him. And by his stripes or his wounds, we are healed. Why? Because all we like sheep have gone astray. And we've turned everyone to his own way. Isn't that true? That's why he had to die. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Let's uh, stop and think for a moment. This hand is me or you. And uh, this Kindle here, let's say that this is the record book of all of your sins. Of course, it would be volume after volume after volume because sin is everything you think, it's the things that you do, and it's also the things that you don't get around to that you should have done. Think about how big it would be. And the Bible says that all we like sheep have gone astray. We've gone our own way. We did what we wanted to do. And yet we're burdened down by the weight of our sin, by the record of everything that we've done. Again, 
everything we thought, everything that we've done that was wrong, and everything we didn't do that we should have done, all upon us. And we try to go to heaven with that, and we try, but if this is heaven, we, we can't get very far off the ground there. We're never acceptable. But the Bible says that God the Father laid the iniquity of, of us all on Christ. Let this hand represent Christ, and look what happens. When He takes my sin, now I am free, now I'm forgiven, now I'm acceptable to God, or justified as we say, and now I'm free to enter into the presence of God. Corny illustration, but it gets the point across. And so, all we like sheep have gone astray, we're sinners, and we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on Christ the iniquity of us all. And he was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, and he was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And he was taken from prison unjustly, and from judgment, and who will declare his generation. So on the cross, punished for our sins, and the religious leaders assumed Christ was dying because he was a blasphemer and a lawbreaker, and God was punishing him. And in a sense, I guess they were right. But it wasn't for his sin. God was punishing him for our sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Those are the greatest words ever written. Christ died taking our sin so he could give us his righteousness and we could have the righteousness of God which we do not deserve. And when you look at this, you note all of the possessive pronouns here our transgressions, and so forth and so on, right? He wasn't doing it for himself. He was doing it to glorify his Father, to fulfill his Father's will and his plan, and we get included in all of that. But his focus was on God. Why did Jesus die? For the glory of God, out of obedience to God. And in that, he was our substitute. Let's keep it all perfectly in order there. Number four... We find out according to this prophecy, he is able to justify sinners like us. Now, he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgressions of my people. He was stricken and they made his grave with the wicked. You know, you usually don't control where or how you're buried after you die, especially if you die on a cross. They would generally leave the bodies on the cross to rot and decay as an example to other people, but because the Sabbath was coming up, the Romans took the bodies down and normally they were thrown over a cliff into a mass grave, an unmarked mass grave buried like a criminal. And this is why this is so amazing and this prophecy would have shocked people. They made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death. Remember Joseph of Arimathea had that tomb that had never been used? And what they would do in those days is take the corpse, put it in the tomb and roll the stone in front of it and let it decay until there was nothing but a skeleton, nothing but the bones. And then they would go in at another point and take the bones and put them into a, a box, a sarcophagus, and uh, then that's what they would actually bury. And uh, so th this is Jesus getting an honorable burial 
when he was crucified like a common criminal. This is amazing. And Isaiah tells us it was done that way because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Who punished Jesus? God the Father did that for him. And he has put him to grief. And when you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. In other words, his death was not the end of him and shall prolong his days. He lives for eternity as the King of kings and Lord of lords, right? Even after his death, he's raised from the dead. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand and he shall see the labor of his soul. That would be you, that would be me and be satisfied by his knowledge my righteous servant look at this shall justify many now why does he justify us or make us right before god for he shall bear their iniquities and so this is telling us he died the wages of sin is death and when he took our sin upon himself then he died and he died in our place he was buried and he rose again. Romans chapter 4 verse 25 says, uh, who was uh, delivered, yeah, I got ahead of myself, delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. And Isaiah said, all of this pleased the Lord. God the Father wasn't weeping over all of this. He was rejoicing in it because this made it possible for you and for me to be saved. In fact, the book of Hebrews says that even Jesus, he endured the cross and he despised the shame. He overlooked that because of the joy that was set before him. And you know what? You're the joy that was set before him. He did it willingly and he was excited about doing it even though it was the most horrific thing he had ever been through, but he did it for the joy of saving you. And it says, my servant Christ shall justify many. It's the only way anybody is going to be saved. This is not just one way to be saved. It's the only way to be saved. And so this tells us that the death of Christ had a definite purpose. It wasn't just that he died hoping people would be saved. He died for a definitive purpose of saving his people rather than just the potential that they could be saved. Well, what does it mean to be justified? Think about this. Justification is God's action pronouncing sinners like us righteous in his sight. We have been forgiven and declared to have fulfilled all that God's law requires of us. Now, obviously, none of us can accomplish this Christ did this for us and we must trust that his death, trust in his death and his resurrection and Christ alone accomplished this for us. So that's what the world doesn't know and that's what we must never downplay and never forget. The whole reason for Christmas, the incarnation, the putting on of flesh of Jesus Christ is so that he could fulfill the Father's plan going all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 verse 16 and all the way to the end of Revelation where he reigns as King of kings and Lord of lords and he has graciously and kindly included us in that. And salvation is free, but it certainly wasn't cheap. It cost the Lord Jesus his life 
and he bore the wrath of God in our place. Praise his name. That ought to make this a little more festive, something that is happier, something that we rejoice in because it's not about the toys and it's not about all of the decorations. It's about the love and the grace of God. And with that, I say, have a Merry Christmas because it really is something to rejoice in for the believer. So God bless you. And I do pray you have a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. And we will see you again in January. God bless.